36 verse 1 through 37 verse 24. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cord of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger, and they do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years are unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. 
and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Uh, The book of Job is filled with many problems. But the great problem that God's prophet, Elihu, is trying to address here is that both Job and his friends believed that they had God and his ways all figured out. Job's friends believed that God was punishing him for some secret sin. Job believed that God was punishing him for no reason at all. Both sides believed that God was punishing Job. So Job's friends accused Job of wrong, while Job accused God of wrong. These were their final conclusions about God and his ways. But as we read through the book of Job, the one text that should be repeated in our minds as a reminder is what Paul said about God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has figured out the ways of God? We know that he has revealed himself in two ways. In nature, in creation. And he has revealed himself to his people in his word. But we must also confess that both nature and his word teaches us that he is incomprehensible. Which means we are unable To understand him. Uh, That doesn't mean we can't know him at all. He has revealed himself and we are called to know him. But we are unable to understand him fully. We can't understand him the way he understands himself. We can't know him the way he knows himself. Uh, Gerhardus Voss helps by explaining that we as humans can only have an incomplete understanding of an infinite being. We can only describe God, but we can't define God. 
Yet the believer has the greatest resource as it is opened up to us in his word. His word describes his nature and character, which demands a response from us. The question always is, how will we respond? Elihu begins with an appeal to Job to keep listening, to bear with him a little. Uh, This is Elihu's final speech, and he has something to say on behalf of God. And this is the same appeal that God's prophets would have all throughout Scripture, proclaiming to his people. And this is the same appeal that the Word of God has on every believer every week when the Word of God is preached. Because how easy it is to drift away from what God has said to us. How easy it is to end up like Job. So he says to Job and to anyone else who is listening, such as ourselves, to keep on listening. Because his knowledge is true. Uh, Elihu's knowledge is from afar. Uh, This doesn't mean he traveled to a far-off library and he read foreign books. No, the, the phrase from afar throughout Scripture is used to describe the distance between God and man, between God's throne and creation. So Elihu's knowledge is from heaven. His words hold heavenly authority is what he is saying. This is the word of God spoken directly to Job. And what is the goal of Elihu's speech? What is the purpose of him sharing his knowledge? It is to vindicate God. It is to ascribe righteousness to the maker and creator of all things. That is the primary goal of any sermon. Because God is the primary focus of any true sermon, not man. And it is for the praise and glory of God. And Elihu declares that his words are not false. They are not twisted for his own purposes or out of selfish motives. We know this because after this speech, we no longer hear from Elihu. He got up, said what he had to say, and then he left the scene altogether. And the reason why Elihu's words are trustworthy is because one who is perfect in knowledge is with you, as he speaks directly to Job. Now, who is this one who is perfect in knowledge? Is he speaking about himself? Well, no. No human being is perfect in knowledge. The only one perfect in knowledge is God himself. So God is with Job at that moment in his word. See, Elihu is the one who prepares the way for the Lord to meet with Job and his friends. And just like every sermon on a Sunday, it is to prepare the listeners to meet with God one day face to face. So to correct Job's low view of God, to correct Job's misunderstanding of God and his ways, Elihu extols God and his ways. To extol means to praise. Uh, Sometimes all we need to hear is a declaration and a shout of praise of God's greatness and majesty, which should appeal for a response. So this is what Elihu does here. He extols God as he declares God's just rule over people. He declares God's greatness in his works. And he declares God's majesty in his glory. And in each declaration, 
He appeals for a response from Job. And ultimately, as this is the word of God, it appeals for a response from us. So first, Elihu declares God's just rule over people. He begins by saying these two words that is repeated three times throughout this chapter, which is the main focus of his speech. He says, behold God. That's what every sermon ought to say. When we open up the word, it ought to say, behold God. God is being revealed to you. And to correct Job's false reasoning about God, he says, God is mighty, and despite what you think, he doesn't despise any. He doesn't play tricks on people. He doesn't pull our chains and lead us on with false promises. God is all-powerful, and he doesn't use his power the way tyrants do. Here, Elihu describes God's ways in a few ways. He is mighty in his wisdom. Here he says he is mighty in strength of understanding, that is, strength of heart. Uh, This is speaking of God's wisdom in the ways he pursues justice. It may not be the way we would do it, but God in his own wisdom is determined and he will pursue justice because he is just as he will not keep the wicked alive forever. Uh, They may be living good lives now, but at some point down the line, they will be judged. And at the same time, he gives the afflicted their right. That is, he will eventually vindicate those who have suffered innocently. Also, he does not turn away from the righteous, but he exalts them to sit on thrones with kings forever. Uh, Think of the way he vindicated Christ. Christ was the most innocent sufferer. And he promised that he will not let his holy one see corruption. Instead, after suffering at the hands of evil men, he exalted Jesus Christ to sit on his right hand forever on his throne. And one day... All those who belong to Christ, Job included, will be exalted to reign with Christ forever. He also describes God's way of discipline and the different responses to his discipline. Because he doesn't bring affliction upon people for nothing. There's always a purpose. See, this line of reasoning goes against the prosperity gospel. Because it says that all of our affliction and suffering have a purpose in our lives. Here he says, if they, that is the righteous, are bound in chains, and if they're caught in the cords of affliction, it is to reveal the true nature of all their work. It is God's way to declare their transgressions to them, that they are behaving arrogantly. Think of Job and his prideful remarks about God. Now, Elihu is not saying that Job is suffering because he sinned, but his suffering led him to sin, and his suffering is used to reveal his pride that may have been lying dormant deep down within him. Unlike Christ, who comes much later on, instead of learning obedience through what he suffered, Job grew arrogant and angry at God. Unfortunately, we are all guilty of this at some point or another, but we are to be made aware that through affliction, 
God opens our ears to instruction. And at times, he calls us to repent. There's always a purpose to our suffering. It's like one preacher who once said, don't waste your suffering. This is a time to listen to what God has to say to you, especially in his word. But here, Elihu lays out two different responses before he appeals to Job, because Job is responding in one of these two ways. First, the right response. The right response is if they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. Not because they have everything they've ever wanted, but because they are blessed in the Lord. The second response is if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. That is, without a saving knowledge of God. And what does this look like? Affliction and suffering is often used to expose sin. It is to show how the godless cherish anger in their hearts as they don't turn to God in prayer. They don't cry to him for help when he binds them. Instead, their response is to turn away from God and live fast and loose. This is how sinners often respond to suffering. He says they die young. We see this often displayed in Hollywood. Our natural response to suffering is to seek satisfaction in other places other than God. He says their life ends among the cult prostitutes. But for the righteous, he delivers them by their affliction. See, both suffer in this world, the wicked and the righteous. For the wicked, it is their due reward. It is judgment. But for the righteous, it is God's way of revealing their sin to them, calling them to repent, delivering them from their wicked ways, and opening their ears to listen to him. That is very different than what we hear coming from the prosperity gospel and other versions of triumphalistic Christianity. They say, affliction, bad. That means you're cursed. Prosperity, good. That means you're blessed. When in all actuality, it could be the exact opposite. So Elihu turns to Job and confirms this. Do you understand what God is doing with you? God has used your affliction to allure you out of distress. That is, the distress of death and destruction at the hands of God. And even though Job doesn't realize it yet, and we don't realize it yet, he has brought you to a broad place, from a confined place. See, suffering confines and restricts us. It leaves many people homebound and bedridden. But he has brought Job to a place of freedom, a place where there will be no more suffering. And what was set on his table was lots of meat, full of fatness. Uh, this is a way to describe that he will have plenty. See, the believer is blessed beyond measure right now, no matter what you are going through. Why? Because you are a citizen of heaven. And there, there is freedom. 
That is the purpose of God for his children, that we would have freedom from this world of sin and suffering and enjoy him and his presence. We have a bit of it now, and when it's fully realized, we will have it for all eternity in its fullness. And sometimes right now in this world, he uses affliction to mature us that we would set our minds on this reality so that we would become heavenly minded, that our minds would be directed upward toward him. But how does Job respond to the way God has chosen to deliver him? And what should have been his response? Unfortunately, Job responded with anger. He is full of judgment on the wicked. He is full of judgment against God because he claims that God is unjust. It has taken over him. But Elihu warns him to beware lest wrath entice him into scoffing or mocking God. He says to him, let not the greatness of the ransom, this may be speaking of the greatness of Job's suffering, the price he paid, turn him aside. Because if so, he is not to expect to be saved. His cry for help will not save him, nor can he save himself by his own strength. He tells him not to long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Uh, that is, don't look for the easy way out in death and do not turn to iniquity rather than affliction as a way out. This is a common response to suffering and pain. Instead of turning to God, we sin against God. Our common response to pain is anger, as if that's going to cure the pain. This happens often when you accidentally hammer your thumb instead of the nail. I'm not a great carpenter. I know there's many great carpenters around us, so you may not relate. <clears throat> but I tend to respond with anger. But then you've got to ask yourself, what are you angry about? You did it. You missed the mark. Because there is a purpose in the way God governs his people. He uses our suffering to further sanctify us and to teach us. So he says it again. Behold, God is exalted in his power. He is all powerful and totally just in all his ways. So he is asking Job, do you understand his way of justice? Do you think that you are more just? in guiding God's people than he is, Job? Do you think you can teach and guide them better than he can? Then go ahead. If it was left up to any one of us, we would make life a bed of roses, wouldn't we? We would make the world to reflect the world in John Lennon's song, Imagine. But think about it. How would that benefit a sinner? How would that benefit a sinner who needs to be taught, who needs to learn, who needs to be disciplined? You know, think of all that you have been through and what it has taught you. So he asks, who is a teacher like God? Who has prescribed for him his way? Who has the ability or the know-how to tell God, the creator and sustainer of all things, what he is supposed to do with his creatures? Or which one of us is perfectly righteous 
to tell him that he has done wrong. Who can accuse God of injustice? So what should have been Job's response to this God who judges justly? What should be our response? He reminds Job, remember, to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. No matter what you have been through, responding to God in anger and defiance is always wrong and it is always dangerous. Like Job, we're all called to repent and get up in the congregation and praise him and his ways of justice and grace, even when we don't understand, which leads to the next point. Secondly, Elihu declares God's greatness in his works, that is, in how he governs the world. Again, for the third time, he draws our attention to where it ought to be. Behold, God. He has already said that God is mighty. God is exalted in his power as he judges justly. Now he says, behold, God is great. This is to say that he is beyond us and beyond our understanding. We know him not. He is inscrutable and incomprehensible. We can't count how old he is because he is infinite and eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Who can understand him? But never mind who can understand him. Who can understand the way he governs creation? There are a lot of smart people out there who can break down and explain the natural world. But which one of them can say, in all honesty, that they can understand all the hows and the whys? Here, Elihu speaks of the process of condensation, which is the collection of drops of water. Evaporation which is when water is turned into a vapor or a cloud, and precipitation, which is when that same water rains on the earth. Who can understand it? Can you understand the spreading of the clouds and thunderstorms? Can you understand the lightning? And when it strikes, it covers and even exposes the roots of the sea. It exposes every dark corner of this world as it shines so brightly. But you see, this is a picture of how God uses the same means to both judge and bless the world. Similar to affliction, God can use a storm to bring terrible damage, or he can use that same storm to grow crops when it rains. The same storm that brings judgment for some brings blessing for others. Just like affliction can bring judgment for some, blessing for others. This is why we cannot judge the state of a person's soul based on what they're going through. The way Job's friends have concluded. This is why we cannot judge the state of the church based on what she is going through. Neither through numbers, nor popularity, nor persecution. The question will always be, how do we respond to affliction? Then Elihu goes on to teach that all of creation speaks of God's greatness. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. 
Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. And this causes a lie whose heart to tremble and leap out of its place because in that thunderstorm, God is speaking. He tells Job, keep listening to his voice. He doesn't withhold lightning from striking every corner of the earth. He brings ice and snowstorms, which we know so well in this part of the country, so much so that the animals and beasts are driven into their lairs and dens. He sends freezing cold whirlwinds, and in thick clouds there is lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. It is all to achieve his purposes in this world. If anyone asks you about climate change, just respond. It is all to achieve God's purposes. Either for correction or for his land. Or for love. He causes it all to happen. He does great things we cannot comprehend. He seals up the hand of every man. That all men whom he made may know it. No one can excuse themselves from the greatness of God. And the reality of his existence. Just look around you. Look at his work. Man is left with no excuse on judgment day. And no man can accuse God of wrong. Because No man can understand his ways. So he turns to Job again. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Think long and hard about this. I think it is wise for all of us to do this at times. Do you know how he does all this? How he causes the lightning to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, or better, the way the clouds hover over the earth? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Do you think you know better than him? You who are not even able to take the heat when the south wind blows, that is the dry southern desert wind. I I love the heat. I know a lot of people up here don't like the heat, but I love the heat. I can't take the cold. You feel the effects of the weather, but you cannot control the weather. Do you think you know better than God, Job? Are you greater than him? Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? This is describing the hot and oppressive days when there is no rain for the crops. It's like the sky turns bronze. We would say, why would God give us such hot days? For his own purposes. It is according to his secret will, which you will never know. If Job knows so much, Elihu says, teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. We lack understanding. This is the point of his entire speech. We don't know as God knows. So stop acting like it. How can we approach God? Would we be so arrogant to challenge him? Shall it be told him that I would speak? That's a death wish. Do you want to be swallowed up thinking that you can challenge and judge him? Can anyone charge God with wrong? So finally, Elihu declares God's majesty and his glory because when the storm has cleared 
And as the wind blows, the clouds out of the way, no one looks on the brightness of the light. And this light he is speaking about is not the light of the sun, uh, because the sun rises in the east. Here it says, out of the north comes golden splendor. In ancient Near Eastern religions, the north was the place of the mountain gods. Uh, the word uh, for north here is the word Zaphon, and it is only spoken a few times in the word of God, and it is a pagan word from pagan religions. But in scripture, it is also associated with where God will set his throne, like in Isaiah 14, verse 13. So from the north, the bright light of the glory of God shines as he is clothed with awesome majesty. He is speaking of that one day after all the affliction, after all the suffering, after all of the storms of life, we will see the brightness of God as he will be our light and the Lamb of God will be our lamp. Because just as Christ was transfigured before his disciples, one day he will appear before us shining in splendor and glory and the only proper response would be to bow down and worship him who is incomprehensible. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. God is beyond our understanding, and we cannot search him out. He dwells in unapproachable light, and he will not violate his own righteousness. So the correct response to this God is that we fear him. Because he doesn't regard any who are wise in their own conceit. He doesn't regard any who think they have figured him out. Because the good news is that God has condescended to us and he has spoken his word to us. He doesn't regard any who ignore his word and what he has revealed, while at the same time trying to figure out all the secret things of God. Many Christians are always on the search for the secret things of God, or the secret will of God. Let me just spoil your fun, you'll never know. Some people say, well, who am I to marry? Or what job am I to have? Well, again, God has revealed himself in two ways. So go to those two ways. In nature and his word. Is he or she a Christian? That's his word. Are you attracted to this person? That's nature. What job am I supposed to have? Well, what are your talents? What are your skills? What do you like to do? That's nature. Does it violate God's law? That's his word. Make a decision. He's not going to reveal to us secret ways to follow him. He's not going to whisper sweet nothings into our ear. Yes, go there. That's not what he does. See, God is incomprehensible, and the good news is that he has revealed himself in nature and in his word. And this ought to lead us to ask ourselves, Does the incomprehensibility of God lead us to fear him? Does it lead us to doxology, to praise, and to worship him? 
Now the bad news is, by nature, we lack praise on our lips. We are so weak in our worship. We are no better than Job. We're all cut from the same cloth as Job. But the good news is that God is incomprehensible. The fact that his ways cannot be understood ought to be a source of hope for all those who are dead and lost in their sins. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Think of the incomprehensibility of God taking the form of a man. Our God who is invisible, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and incomprehensible, becoming a baby to be held and taken care of by sinful parents. John says we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He that is the Son of God, who is God, he has made him known. Beloved, that we will never understand. And it was all to deliver us from our sin and death. To deliver us from our lack of praise. The greatest affliction and suffering was placed on God's only begotten Son for us. And this act of justice to satisfy the penalty for sin on our behalf was to bring us to God, to make us alive to God. After hearing His Word preached, you've got to ask yourself, are you alive to God? Because one day this Jesus will bring us to glory where we will witness his greatness and majesty. What is your response to this? Can you say, or better, can you sing with Paul, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.